Good morning, Fellowship Favor. Welcome. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the leaders here. This is Kate, and we're excited to be up here this morning to lead us um, as we gather together to lift up the name of Jesus. Um, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. If this is your first time or if your first time back in a while, we, we really value at our church um, community and connection, and, and the best way to do that is through our small groups. Uh, the summer can look a little different for small groups, but we definitely have some options available for you if that's something you'd like. Um, there's a couple ways to get connected. Uh, the easiest way would actually be is whenever we're done today and you walk out these back doors to continue to walk straight and you'll see a booth and it says community over it. Stop, introduce yourself, and we want to help you get plugged in to a small group. Or we also have this QR code on your phone. And if you go to your camera on your phone, you hold it up to the QR code, a link should pop up and you can go to that link and sign up. And we would love to help you get connected to what we're doing here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Got a couple things that we wanna keep out in front of you. Um, starting July 10th, we have our, our merge study. And for those of you that don't know what merge is, merge is our uh, premarital uh, counseling um, program, essentially. And we're gonna put you in a small group and we're gonna walk you through uh, what it looks like to be married biblically, what is marriage for? And, and give you some people to do it with uh, alongside of. And I know there's been a lot of community groups that started out as merge groups first. And it's for people who are seriously dating or if you're engaged. And so if you know somebody that's in that stage of life, invite them to sign up to merge. Um, sign ups fill up pretty quick. And so uh, let's, let's get on that and invite them to do that. Well, hey, uh, a couple days ago, there was a, an earthquake in Afghanistan. I don't know if you saw that on the news or not. Um, and there was over a thousand people who lost their lives and they said close to 1500 were, were injured and so this morning um, as a body of, of Christ followers we're going to begin our time by praying for Afghanistan pray for their land pray for their people that they that they would sense the Lord's presence and his peace and so if you would would you bow your head and would you just take a moment and would, would you pray for the people in Pakistan and Afghanistan who, who lost their lives. Take a moment and do that. Take a moment and pray that they would feel the Lord's presence. You ask him to heal their land. Well, Father, we come to you because we know that you are um, smarter, wiser, mightier, holier, and grander than, than we are. And Lord, even in things that our minds can't wrap around and understand, we know that we have faith that you do. And so, Father, I do pray for the people in Pakistan and Afghanistan that lost loved ones this past week. Lord, that you would bring them, you would draw them to you as the, as the wonderful counselor who, who meets us in our need. Would you draw those people to you? Lord, would you heal their land? Lord, in some way, would this be used for your glory and for your good? 
Lord, this morning as we gather and as we lift up our eyes, would you remind us of who you are, that you are God, that we are not, and there's so much peace that's found in that. So God, we need you this morning, and we look to you as, as the king. In your name I pray. Amen. As we begin our time, can we stand together? We're going to sing together, but before we do that, I, I want us to read this prayer together to tune our tune our hearts and to fix our mind on, on why we're here this morning. God, you have called us into connection with you through the work of Jesus on the cross and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have and always will be faithful to what you say. Let's read this together as a people. Lord God, we love you. We trust you. We believe in you. We know that Jesus loves us and died for us. We know that you never leave us. Today, we gather together because you have called and claimed us as your own. Let's begin this morning by reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ. Not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill. for that this morning. I rejoice. So I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest treasure will spring up my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him
Jesus. And my values fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. So I rejoice in thy Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in him no other, my soul is sad. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Say that together one more time. I rejoice. in him no other my soul is satisfied in him alone my soul is satisfied in him
together again. seat for a moment. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to, we're going to take what's called an offertory prayer, and we're going to pray over um, our offering this morning. And I know for me, it's, it's, always, uh, it's always good to be reminded as to why we give. Um, we give because of how much we've received from the Lord. And I've found that in giving, it reminds me that the things that I've been giving, I'm called to be a good steward of in order to bless others. Um, this past week, I was having breakfast with, with an older gentleman, and I was talking about some, some struggles that I have, and one of those is I, I actually don't like to admit it, but I want a lot of money. 
I don't want to have to live with a budget. I want to be able to spend money whatever I want because I think that might make me happier. And he looked at me across the table and said, you do realize you're not taking any of it with you when you go, right? And he just paused. You do realize that all the time you're thinking about it, you're not taking any of that with you. What you can do is use it to bless others and to pass it forward. And so it's just good to be reminded that what we have, the more we open our hands with what we have, we can bless other people. And so we're gonna take a moment and read this prayer and I'm gonna just let you read it to yourself. And then we're gonna pass the offering and we're gonna ask that the Lord uses what we give to bless those in our city, around the world, for his name and for his glory. So let's take a moment as a church and, and spend some time with this prayer before we give.
Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Well, thank you, Antha, for reading that passage for us. For those of you who don't know Antha Johnson, She's one of the rock stars of this place. Not only does she teach at Fayetteville High School, which as the parent of four Purple Dog alumni, I love that, but she's a cell group leader. She jumped in with a cell group that needed a leader, some high school girls, she graduated them, and then she re-upped for a second tour with some seventh graders, and now they're rising juniors. My daughter, Lainey, is in that cell group. So thank you, Antha. Thank you for all the ministry you do around here. It's people like you who make Fellowship Fayetteville such an awesome place. Well, one of the things Antha gets to do in her job and in her ministry is have significant conversations. And I guarantee you, every one of us, if we think back over our life, we've had some really significant conversations. Maybe they were in the workplace. Maybe a significant conversation for you happened at a job interview or at a really important performance review. Maybe you were offered a new opportunity that changed your life. And all of us have probably had a DTR. Y'all know what this is? You've probably had one, even if you don't know what that means. It means determine the relationship. Man, those are scary conversations, aren't they? Because the person you're in a relationship with might not be thinking the same thing you are. But man, those can be really significant conversations. And then there's those conversations that we have with teachers and with mentors. I think back over my own life. When I was in high school, 
My band director talked to me out of wanting to be a band director. When I was in college, my doctor talked me out of wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> I'm grateful to those guys. They kept me on the path I was supposed to be on. But there's no more significant conversation than any of us have in our life than the conversation where someone tells us about Jesus. I was eight years old. I had a Sunday school teacher named Jim Starks. He was a truck driver. He was a little older than my parents. He didn't have a third grade boy, but he loved the Lord. And he knew that third grade boys needed to hear the gospel. And he sat me down one day and just very clearly explained to me that Jesus had died for my sins and that by placing my faith in him, I could have eternal life with him. And that conversation was so significant because it led to another conversation later that day that I had with the Lord. And that conversation changed everything. And those conversations with Jesus are where we're going in our next section of our study of the book of John. We're gonna look at encounters that Jesus has recorded in John's gospel. Well, my name's Michael, and I serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And I'm, I've really enjoyed the approach that we've taken to the book of John. For those of you who maybe are coming in in the middle or joining us for the first time today, we're taking a little bit of a unique approach to our study of John. This is our third pass through the book. Our first pass, we spent seven weeks looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. When Jesus says I am, he's recalling the great I am of the Old Testament the moment at the burning bush where God says, tell them that I am has sent you. That word I am, we usually transliterate it into English as Yahweh. And so every time Jesus says I am, it's a strong claim to deity. He is connecting himself to the great I am of the Old Testament. And after we had done seven of those, we went back to the beginning of the book and we did seven miracles or signs. And these were strong statements of Jesus' power. What we saw in those seven weeks was that Jesus has power over the natural world. He has power over disease. We saw last week even he has power over death. And so those miracles or signs, they were a vindication or a statement of the truthfulness of the I am statements. Not only is Jesus claiming to be Yahweh made flesh, he's doing things that only God could do. Now we're gonna reset one more time and we're gonna spend seven weeks looking at these seven encounters and what we're gonna see is that they are amazingly personal. It blows my mind when I think about it that the creator God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, the great I am who has power over nature, he has power over disease, he has power even over death himself, itself, he took on flesh and walked on the earth as a man and had these incredible, intimate, personal encounters with individuals. And we're gonna see over the course of our study the wide variety of people that he has encounters with. You heard what Antha just read us. Nicodemus, he was a member of the religious elite. But next week, in the very next chapter, we're gonna see Jesus have an encounter with a woman who's a total outsider. We're gonna see him have encounters with his followers, we're gonna see him have an encounter with an unbelieving politician. And in these encounters, he's gonna take on sin and failure and confusion and doubt. 
And so as we study these, we never have to wonder, how does God respond to those things? We know how, because we see how he responds in the words and works of Jesus Christ. So as you can tell, I'm excited about it. Let's get right to it. We're gonna be in John chapter three. If you've got your Bible or your digital device, I wanna invite you, turn there with me. We're gonna just kinda work our way through this story. As you're turning there, I wanna remind you where we are in the story of the life of Jesus. In John chapter three, Jesus has been baptized. He's begun his ministry. He's called his disciples. He's already turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And we know he's done other signs and miracles that aren't recorded in John. And at the end of John chapter two, it says Jesus is at the Passover in Jerusalem and many of the Jews are coming to faith in him. And it's into that situation that steps this character, Nicodemus. And John very skillfully tells us a lot about Nicodemus in the very first verse of the chapter. He tells us he's a man of the Pharisees and he's a ruler of the Jews. Now you probably remember the Pharisees. They're the religious elite in Israel. These are men who are totally dedicated to keeping God's law, the Old Testament law that God gave the people of Israel. So he's a very devout follower of Yahweh. And it says he's a ruler. That means he's a member of this ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 members, priests, scribes, and other influential and wealthy men of Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court on all things, religious or social. And so Nicodemus is a very powerful and influential man, which probably explains why the meeting takes place at night. Nicodemus probably didn't want to draw a lot of attention to the fact that he was meeting with Jesus. You'll recall in John chapter 2, Jesus has cleared the temple. This is the first temple clearing that's recorded only in John. And that had probably raised some eyebrows among the Pharisees. And so Nicodemus comes to him, and look how he addresses him. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. For Nicodemus to call Jesus Rabbi, it's a, it's a term of respect and not one that he would have used lightly. You know, we're here in a college town. People in higher education, they don't use uh, titles like professor or doctor lightly because it means a lot in that world. And so for Nicodemus to call a man who has no formal training, rabbi, is significant. He recognizes there's something special about Jesus. Nicodemus basically says, I have to believe the things I've seen. Nobody can do these things unless God is with him. I don't think Nicodemus is there to trap Jesus. I think he's a man who spent his life genuinely seeking the Lord, and now he's intrigued by this teacher, this rabbi, this miracle worker named Jesus. But Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter in verse three. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus says, truly, truly, often. In the old King James, it said, verily, verily, a lot of modern translations say, I tell you the truth. What Jesus is saying when he uses that construction is, the thing I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. And the thing he tells Nicodemus is, to see, which means to participate in the kingdom of God, 
you must be born again. Now that phrase, born again, it's got a little baggage in 21st century America, doesn't it? <clears throat> we think of born again often in our broader culture <clears throat> in terms of there are regular Christians who go to regular churches and act like regular people. And there and there are born again Christians who are extra excited <laughs> and extra good and carry extra large, extra leather bound Bibles, right? In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary. Believe it or not, the dictionary says born again means someone who returns to or begins a new activity with extreme intensity or zeal. Guess what? That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is saying is that to be part of God's kingdom, you need a fresh start. You need a spiritual rebirth. You need a second heavenly birth. And I actually think Nicodemus knows what he means. Even in the first century, when someone converted to Judaism, it was commonly said by the rabbis that that person was like a newborn baby. So I think Nicodemus gets it. But Nicodemus knows he's not a new convert. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he's a respected elder highly theologically educated. He spent his lifetime serving God and now Jesus says, you need to start all over. And so it's hard to know how to read his response in verse four. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now most of my life I've heard this taught one of two ways. I've either heard it taught as a sarcastic reply from a self-righteous Pharisee who doesn't believe he needs a new birth, or I've heard it as a dense reply from an overly literal person who doesn't understand the spiritual implications of what Jesus is saying. But I'm not sure either one of those are right. I feel like I detect in Nicodemus' reply a real desire for that rebirth, a longing. I'm imagining a man who has spent his whole life trying to follow every letter of the law. A man who's dedicated himself to crossing every T and dotting every I and making sure that his righteousness is seen so that his influence on the council and in the community remains untarnished. Don't you think that had to be exhausting? And I'm guessing that as Nicodemus stood there in front of Jesus and Jesus said, you need a new birth, Nicodemus, deep down inside, knew what we all knew, know, that he couldn't do it, that his law-keeping was far from perfect. Nicodemus knew better than anybody how many times he had failed. I think he knew he needed the second birth. I think he wanted a fresh start and a second chance. But it just seemed so impossible, as impossible as returning to the womb and being born all over again. But Jesus doesn't relent. Look at verse five. He says it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus doubles down. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And scholars have long pondered the meaning of that phrase, born of water and the Spirit. What is the water Jesus is referring to here? Well, some point to baptism, which represents repentance. And I can see how they get there. (coughs) But it seems unlikely to me that Nicodemus would have made such a connection. Plus, baptism's never mentioned again in the rest of the passage. Or it could be that Jesus is referring to physical birth. And for a long time, I thought that was the most likely explanation. (coughs) The water breaks and the baby is born, only later to be reborn spiritually. But the problem with that view is (coughs) there aren't really any other first century examples of referring to physical birth as being born of water. (coughs) Excuse me, my allergies are giving me fits. Come on, Claritin, do your job. (coughs) Couple that with the fact that Jesus is about to contrast fleshly birth with spiritual birth makes me think that argument is pretty weak. So I've changed my mind. (coughs) As I've studied, I came to see that Jesus is meeting Nicodemus where he is. Nicodemus is a scholar. He's an expert in the Old Testament. And I think Jesus is expecting Nicodemus to connect this conversation with Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. Look at this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. The water and the spirit. A new heart. Forgiveness of sin. Cleansing. A fresh start. Or perhaps Nicodemus would have recalled Isaiah 44. God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. I think Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this new birth is exactly what the Old Testament prophets that you've been studying your whole life were pointing you to. A new birth that cleanses and renews. A new birth that replaces your heart of stone with a heart that's soft to the things of God. It's exactly the kind of new birth Nicodemus was longing for, and now Jesus was offering it to him. So Jesus says, don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. But I think he knew that Nicodemus' mind was reeling. He was so confused. And so Jesus says, let me give you a really simple analogy. It's like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, those who experience this new birth, 
they won't see the Holy Spirit coming, but they'll see his effects. Other people may not understand how you've been reborn anew in Jesus, but they'll see the effect of the Spirit in your life as surely as they see the wind rustling the leaves of the trees. And I think Nicodemus wants to connect. I think he wants to understand this theologian, this thinker. He's come to Jesus, and Jesus has blown his mind. How can these things be, he says. And I can't help but imagine Jesus sighing a little bit as he says, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? If anyone should have understood this, it was Nicodemus, and yet he couldn't wrap his mind around it. Jesus says in verse 12, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so Jesus, again, meeting Nicodemus where he is, he's gonna give this Old Testament scholar two strong Old Testament images to chew on. First, he's gonna refer to Daniel 7 when he refers to himself as the son of man. Nicodemus certainly would have recognized this allusion to Daniel 7. The son of man appears there. He comes from the throne of heaven with dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then in 14, Jesus reaches all the way back to the time of Moses. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now when we read that, we may not immediately think of Numbers 21, but Nicodemus would have. That was an episode that had happened some 1,400 years earlier when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. When they wandered in the wilderness in the promised land, the people sinned against God by complaining and so God sent poisonous snakes. The Bible calls them fiery serpents. And the people they bit were dying. So they repented and they cried out to God. And so God told Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And now Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the Old Testament scholar, that story was a picture of me. Just as the serpent was lifted up on a pole Jesus, the Son of Man, would be lifted up on a cross. And just as the people who looked at that serpent in faith lived, those who look upon the crucified Jesus in faith will live eternally. And what follows is one of the most well-known and often quoted passages in the whole Bible. It's a beautiful summary of the gospel. I said this last time I was with you in a different passage but I'm gonna say it again today. Don't let the familiarity with this rob you of its beauty. John 3, 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, before we unpack this a little bit, I wanna ask y'all a question. A lot of you have your Bibles open in front of you. Some of you have your digital devices pulled up. If you have a red letter edition, how many of you have John 3, 16 through 21 in red? Let me see your hands. Okay. 
How many of you have a red letter edition, but John 3, 16 through 21 is in black? Yeah, that's what I expected, about half and half. So what's going on here? Well, the original manuscripts of all of these New Testament books were written in Greek. And Greek doesn't have quotation marks or commas or even periods. There's no punctuation in ancient Greek. And so sometimes it's really hard to tell where a quotation ends. So your translators have a decision to make. The ESV, which I'm using, the red letter ESV I use for personal study, it has 16 to 21 as a continued quotation from the mouth of Jesus. It's all in red. The NIV translators have decided that Jesus stops talking at the end of verse 15 and that 16 through 21 is a commentary on what he said written by John. And so accordingly, if you have an NIV, even if it's a red letter edition, these verses are not in red because they're not a quotation from Jesus. So what do we do with this? Well, I'll tell you what I think we should do. Nothing. Because it doesn't matter, and the reason it doesn't matter is because of something called inerrancy. That's our view of the Bible. Here's how my go-to guy for theological definitions, Wayne Grudem, says it. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. But I like how Dr. Ryrie says it even better. It means it's true. The Bible is inerrant in that it tells the truth and it does so without error in all parts with all its words. That's what we believe here at Fellowship. Look at our statement of faith. It says, we believe that the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments are verbally inspired by God and whole and in part, error-free in the original writings and the supreme authority of faith and practice for the believer in Jesus Christ. So what it means for this passage is that whether Jesus originally said it or John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote it in response to what Jesus had said, either way, it's equally inspired. It's from God. And so while red letters might be helpful in our study those words are not any more or less inspired than the rest of your Bible because ultimately every single word in your Bible is straight from God and without error. The red ones and the black ones. And y'all, there's a reason that John 3.16 is so widely known and so widely quoted. It's a beautiful summary of the gospel and as a matter of fact, if you look at it in context, Verses 16 through 18 unpacks the gospel message in this beautiful way because it gives us the how and the why of the gospel and it shows us the reality that creates our need for it. Verse 16, how does God save us? Well, he gave us his only son because he loved the world so much. Verse 17, why did Jesus come? He came in order that the world might be saved through him, and then the reality check of verse 18. We need this gospel message because we're condemned already. Every single one of us is born into a broken, sinful world, and then we contribute to its brokenness and sinfulness through our own thoughts and actions. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it. It was already condemned. 
but by believing in him. And by the way, you may have noticed that word believe appears eight times in these 21 verses. It's the key idea. By believing, we can have eternal life. And so this rich, deep, complex, challenging theological discussion comes down to this simple truth. Jesus offers a new birth that leads to eternal life. This deep theological discussion between Jesus and the man who was possibly the greatest theological mind the Jewish community had at that time all boils down to a statement so simple a child can understand it. In fact, it was in regard to the book of John that Augustine, the great fourth century thinker and theologian, said his famous quote, the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Ah, this chapter is a perfect example of that. Can a child understand that God loved the world so much he sent his son that by simple faith in Jesus Christ we can have eternal life with him? Absolutely a child can understand that. And so parents, don't be shy about sharing the truths of the gospel with your kids at a young age. They probably understand more than you think. And that's our first application this morning. For all of us, believe the simple gospel message. Believe that God was made flesh. Believe that he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. Believe that he went to the cross on your behalf and my behalf to pay for our sins. Believe that if you place your faith in him, you can have eternal life. Believe that he offers a chance at a new birth, a second birth, that you really can be a new creation in him. Because once you experience that new birth, you begin a new life in Christ. This is how we often depict it here at Fellowship. We're all born dead in unbelief and in our sins. That's why we need the second birth. But once we experience it, that's only the beginning. Now we're a spiritual infant. And God wants to use the Holy Spirit, his word and his people to grow us up in Christ as we become a spiritual child, a spiritual young adult, and eventually a spiritual parent who can reproduce Christ in someone else and help them experience this life. So yes, all it takes is simple faith in Jesus. But then after we've been challenged by that, we can spend the rest of our life understanding its implications. I've been following Jesus 43 of my 51 years, and I'm still growing, and I'm still learning, because his word is not just deep, it's limitless. So I wanna invite everybody here to take a step. For some of you, it's that first, first step of faith. You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never admitted that you need the salvation he freely offers. Today could be that day. And for others, it's simply a step into a deeper relationship with Jesus. It's a step toward that spiritual growth that he desires for you. Jesus offers a richness of relationship that we can never exhaust. Well, like a lot of significant conversations, this conversation with Nicodemus, it doesn't have any closure. It doesn't really end. I don't know 
how he left that meeting that night. I do know that we see him two more times in scripture. We're gonna see him again in the Sanhedrin, arguing for fair treatment for Jesus. But then we're gonna see him again as he takes the body of Jesus down off the cross and gives him a royal burial. And interestingly, in secular history, we're told of a member of the Sanhedrin who came from the wealthiest, most influential family in Jerusalem, a man who lost everything. He lived in the first century, and he lost his status, he lost his wealth, and he lost his position. That man's name was Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. I don't know if it's the same man. I don't know if following Jesus cost Nicodemus everything, but I have to think that Nicodemus found what he was looking for. He found that second birth. He found that fresh start. And my prayer is that you will find it as well. And after you found it, after you've experienced that new birth, you'll join me in spending the rest of your life trying to live in light of it. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the people that you've gathered in this place and online today to simply reflect on this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Lord, I pray, give us insight. Lord, help us see ourselves in this story. Lord, quicken in us that need for a new birth and a desire to live in light of it. And Lord, I pray that because of our time spent together in your word, we'll be different for your glory and for your namesake. Would you stand with us as we sing this simple gospel message?
1, 24 and 25, to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And together we say, amen and amen. This morning, if you need prayer, to my left, to your right, we'd love to pray with you in our prayer room. This, this week, can we live in light of the truth of the gospel? We love you, Fellowship Fayetteville. We'll see you next week.